Hi, this is Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and welcome to Newsfeed, my podcast about the intersection of tech, media, and politics. My guest today is Lydia Polgreen, the newish editor-in-chief of HuffPost, and we're going to talk about her new role in, in trying to make a an internet tabloid and what that means, about her totally singular life story and, and, and her identity as a, as a human being and as a journalist and how she feels about the attention to that. Um, but I thought I would start with actually something I don't think we've ever actually talked about, which is, but in this in this format, I have the kind of luxury of grilling you about your biography, which is I, I saw in, in this profile of you and out that you had um, that you felt like that growing up overseas had given you a kind of outsider insider perspective on on being in the U.S. and that you had grown up as the child of uh, your your father was a missionary in Ghana. Is that right? Yeah, Ghana and and Kenya. So how were you born there? So I was born in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, my mother is from Ethiopia. My parents met in Ethiopia when my dad was an exchange student there. They came back to the U.S., uh, got married in rapid succession, had three kids, me being the middle one. And uh, we were living in D.C. at the time. And when I was four years old, we moved to Kenya. Where he was he – was running a mission or working at a mission? So uh, my parents uh, at the time were adherents of the Baha'i faith, which is, um, you know, a, uh, a sort of un- – I can't think of the best way to describe it, but it sort of has the same relationship to Islam that Christianity has to uh, Judaism. Um, And um, it's a kind of universalist creed. uh, And missionaries aren't paid. You're essentially expected to go out and find a job and do your own thing and uh, in your spare time spread the faith. And so the driving force of us going overseas. But my my dad really worked in development. Um, His background was in agricultural engineering, appropriate technology. He was very much a child of the – uh, counterculture movement and and um, you know was was drawn to uh, the idea of alleviating poverty in the developing world um, and um, you know helping farmers diversify their crops and and stuff like that so that's what took us to Kenya and do you and do you, I don't know do you think that you um, we're gonna get to this in a minute if you had for for about five minutes you had the world's most conventional New York Times career I always wonder about this did you feel like that you know when you were covering the New York Fire Department when you were covering whatever you were covering in New York for the New York Times that that was a perspective that that you brought to the work. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, you know, I'm I'm this sort of uh, perpetual outsider. Um, you know, I grew up most of my life in countries that were neither where I was born nor where either of my parents were from. I was part of a weird religion that nobody had heard of. Um, you know, I'm biracial, and you know, I'm a queer woman. So there are a lot of things that make me very different from other people. Um, and I think that's, that's really been a key to my journalism throughout my career. Anything that I'm doing, I think I always come at it from an outsider perspective. Uh, the first like real front page story that I had uh, for The Times was about um, how you know, after decades of battles over public restrooms in New York City – effectively chain stores had become the public restroom of choice for New Yorkers uh, because, you know, with all these mom and pop shops, none of them ever had publicly accessible restrooms. But, you know, when Starbucks came into the city, when... And so, you know, it's sort of a silly little thing, but it was one of those things that, you know, a lot of my colleagues who had been living and working in New York for a long time, this had just sort of gradually happened, like, you know, frogs in warm water. But, you know, me coming as an outsider, I was like, oh, this is actually really interesting. So, I mean, that's like a tiny little example, but I think I just always carry this, this you know, kind of happy sense of 
of being able to come into any situation and know that I don't exactly fit in, but um, I can make a place for myself. So you're like a kid at the New York Times on the, you know, maybe one in 35 years, you'll get posted for two weeks to some foreign country. But it's like it's like like great institutions, actually. It's a big bureaucratic place with a template. And you and you would come in as a young journalist working on the Metro desk, I think. Yeah, I was uh, I was covering. I mean, I did I did some time in the shack, um, you know, down the, the at one po- police plaza. Yes, the shack. Uh, where I where I worked. Uh, That's you where know, you get hazed, basically. I worked basically thigh to thigh with like the most legendary team. It was Willie Rashbaum, Al Baker, and Kevin Flynn, and like those guys are just amazing. And I feel like I learned so much. Just like yeah, police reporting is such police amazing. reporting is the best. So I did that. I was you know uh, hazed uh, in the Westchester Bureau for a while, uh, working out of White Plains. Um, And, um, you know, typically you, you know, it's sort of a five to 10 year track to get to to get a chance to be a foreign correspondent. And um, in the middle, you know, not long after I got at the Times, maybe, I don't know, 18 months in, um, the whole Jason Blair catastrophe happened. Um, And uh, some of your listeners might might not remember Jason Jason Blair. Blair, You know, honestly, looking back in the journalistic catastrophes of the last 10 years, that doesn't seem like a huge one anymore. This was a young reporter who fabricated some stuff on minor stories, but in egregious ways. Yeah. Um, and and yes, it does seem incredibly in in light of, of the election cycle we've just been through. It's, I mean, or, know, but or, or Iraq. And Iraq I, I wonder, I think and, the Times hand wringing about, if I can editorialize here about Jason Blair, was maybe a little bit of displacement for the hand wringing about Iraq. It's much easier to admit error in that kind of situation than in, uh, you know, starting a war. Um, so anyway, like when, when Jason Blair, when the whole Jason Blair thing blew up, uh, they decided to embrace radical transparency and post all open jobs. And I just saw this as an opportunity. They, they, they posted the Johannesburg bureau chief job, which, I mean, think about this. Two of the last four executive editors of the New York Times were Johannesburg bureau chiefs at, at some oh. point, Bill Keller and uh, and Joe Lillyveld. This is a very prestigious post. And I was like, I don't know, 28 years old, which at, at the Times is very young at HuffPost and BuzzFeed, not so much. But, um, you know, I had the temerity to, to put my hand up for that job. And Roger Cohen, who at the time was the uh, the foreign editor, you know, sort of gamely met with me and said, "Look, you know, there's there's no way I'm giving you this job. This is, you know, uh, but it but it turned out that they needed someone to keep the seat warm until they could get a grown up to fill it. Um, so they sent me on a six week, um, you know, let's see what you can do. Um, I don't think I slept a single night of those six weeks that I spent in Johannesburg, but it was an unbelievable experience and. Um, I think I did okay because after that they 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 kept sending me on on sort of short term foreign gigs uh, to Haiti and and other places, and um, when uh, the Dakar the West Africa Bureau opened up, um, uh, Susan Shira, who had since become the the, the foreign editor, um, you know when I when I reached out to her, she said, "Sure, let's give it a try." Um, I was twenty nine years old and I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. Can I swear on this? I don't know. I, I think so. We're, this is the, the. I don't think. I don't think the FCC regulates podcasts. Right. It's my. Uh, it's one of the, one of the great luxuries. You can, in general, you know, you're you're working for HuffPost now. You can swear on the the website. It's, it's true. You can, you can have sweary headlines. Yeah. 
no. So so I found myself, and and it's funny because I, when I set off for uh for for West Africa, um our our bureau chief at the time in Nairobi, who actually was assigned to cover Sudan because that's part of the the East Africa territory, he couldn't get a visa to go to Sudan and uh and and into Darfur, and um I had managed to sweet sweet talk the uh, uh Sudanese uh, representative here at the UN and gotten myself a visa. Um, and this comes back to this insider outsider, you know, Sudan, Ethiopia, neighbors, a lot of shared culture, cuisine, things like that. So, um, you know, I had a very friendly chat with him. And, you know, next thing I knew, stamp, 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 this very hard to get visa was in my passport um, and with a bunch of introductions to people in, in Khartoum and whatnot. So um, I, I, I set off uh, and um, this is something that I'll, I'll forever uh, uh not quite regret, but um, it was it was an eye opening lesson. My then partner, now wife, uh, had never been to Africa. Um, she, I think, the farthest afield she'd ever been was like Aruba. Uh, I sent her off with our cat um, and all of our life's possessions to set up a life for us in uh, Senegal by herself while I traipsed off to Sudan. And much to her credit, Candy figured it out and 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 got things uh, set up. Uh, she didn't really speak French, uh, which was a challenge. Uh, I, I never did that again, though. Um, but yeah, so I so so my first big, big story as a foreign correspondent was Darfur. And that turned out to be really kind of a defining um, um, a defining story for me. One of the other things about foreign correspondence, I think about this a lot with our, our world editor, Miriam Elder, is that when you're in the newsroom, you're particularly in the 90s, 2000s, you're getting the physical newspaper, you're seeing a physical newspaper, you sort of believe, I mean, you believe in the reality of print because you're kind of living it and your deadlines are set by it. When you're a foreign correspondent, I mean, particularly probably in, in, in West Africa, like maybe the New York Times is not easily, is not fallen on your doorstep. And do you think that like you, because you were obviously somebody who liked the internet when a lot of people in the New York Times weren't so into the internet. Do you think being a foreign correspondent like changed the way you saw the internet, saw technology starting to do positive and interesting things in journalism? Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I spent my childhood in Kenya and Ghana. When I was in high school in Ghana, we didn't have a home phone. I mean, like if we wanted to – if I wanted to make plans with my friends, like I had to make plans at school and then just be there because there was no way to like communicate. Um, if – you know, there were these huge historic events that were unfolding um, in Ghana at the time. You know, the, the military dictator decided to hold an a, actually free and fair election. Like there was no way for me to read a New York Times story about that or read a Washington Post story about that. You know, we had, you know, a shortwave BBC radio and the national news and that was it, you know. So I grew up in this like – incredibly information-constrained environment. And so uh, to become a foreign correspondent, like at the birth of social media to me, was just an extraordinary gift um, because it meant that my stories could be read by the people that I was writing about. Um, and it meant that they could come back to me to say, you really fucked that up or you were wrong about this or, hey, thanks for noticing. Um, and that ability to have that sort of feedback loop um, with your readers to me felt incredibly powerful. Um, and when I when I first signed up for a Twitter account, I think I want to say it was in 2007, um, it was just as I was leaving West Africa and initially I, I set up the account as private because I didn't want anybody at the New York Times to know about it. And I thought, oh, you know, people are going to think this is like some weird self-promotional thing or it's going to – but, you know, in time, you know, I was called upon to like 
try to persuade other foreign correspondents and journalists to, to like get on Twitter and see the usefulness of it, which is which is kind of ironic. But your question is really a good one because um, if you look at the people who became like the big digital leaders at um, the Times in the current era, uh, Cliff Levy, Ian Fisher, me, Sam Dolnick were all people who um, were foreign correspondents during this period. So I think the the, the journalists who, uh, and I, I mean traditional journalists, who um, are leading the digital charge at the Times have um, all have that background as a foreign correspondent, which I think is not accidental. One other thing I want to ask you about is when you were, I guess particularly, it's you, there were two or three different Africa postings. Yeah. But, so um, I was in West Africa and then I was in India for three years and then uh, South Africa. But these, And these are places, and this is you know several years ago, the U.S. is changed a lot since then. But these were places where probably it's hard to be out in certain ways. How did you navigate that? Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, <laughs> I've always, I've always been out. I've never, I've never, I mean, you know, like once I came out in college, I just have always been out and, um, you know, at work with, with pretty much everybody. Um, and, you know, my, my, my wife and I both, Working as journalists because she's she's a photographer um, and often working together, um, you know, would have to kind of navigate this weird world. And it's when you're trying to develop sources, when you're trying to um, you know make personal connections with people, you inevitably want to share things about yourself, and and that can be really tricky. Um, and you know, when it came to our kind of like life at home, you know, in a lot of these places, you have a staff that, you know, do your housekeeping and all that kind of stuff. And we had in India, we had a driver because everybody has a driver. They all knew and were, you know, perhaps slightly confused by it, but, you know, didn't it wasn't a, it wasn't a big issue. But it, it, it got tricky. I mean, like, for example, in India, um, Candy wasn't able to have a spouse visa, which is how every foreign correspondent's spouse is able to live there. And India is notoriously difficult. Its visa regime is notoriously difficult um, to get a residency permit and all that stuff. So that threw up all kinds of complicated barriers for us. And, um, you know, I remember once having to go to meet with a foreign ministry official and say, you know, look, I I have a real problem here. You know, my my partner, uh, we weren't married at the time, but I said, look, this is effectively my spouse. Uh, you know, can what are our options here so that she can stay in India? And, um, and you know, he was a really nice guy. And he said, um, you know, is this person, you know, really important to you? And I just thought, my God, you know, I mean, my wife and I have been together since college. You know, it's 20 years. Um, and uh, to be confronted with that question was kind of mind-blowing. And I don't think he meant it in a, any kind of prejudicial way or, you know, I think he was speaking in the language that felt, right and comfortable to him and was trying to be respectful. But um, but it was it was really it was really a, an extraordinary moment. I had another experience where I was interviewing a an archbishop in the Episcopal Church. And I don't know if you remember, there was this big schism of our homosexuality in the yeah. church. And this was in Nigeria. Um, this 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 um, guy, Peter Akinola, and he was one of the very hardcore, like, anti-gay. And that really uh, split the church it really, globally. It really split the church globally. And Nigeria was in the midst of this incredible anti-gay hysteria. There were all these laws that were positive, things like that. And I'm sitting there interviewing this guy, and he tells me this story about um, once realizing that he'd just shaken hands with a homosexual and, like, jumping back um, and in horror, you know. And, and here I am sitting across the table from him, you know, having a, 
you know, friendly but tough reporter to source conversation. It's it's kind of um, the mind reels. And yeah, and I think you know you you're you're my age. You're uh, you were I think you're born in seventy five. Yeah, somewhere in that yeah, ballpark. Yeah. And I think the way identity gets talked about on the internet has changed so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, there wasn't when you were, were coming up as a reporter. There wasn't, I even think, probably like a space for so much a conversation about identity. And I wonder how you feel as a reporter of that vintage coming and seeing now there's this huge conversation about identity on the internet. Like, what's your, how do you feel about that? It's so funny. I mean, I, I really struggle with it, you know, to, to be perfectly candid. Um, you know, I have um, a perhaps naive um, point of view informed by my own, you know, kind of snowflake in the unique sense rather than the political sense um, uh, personal story, right? I mean, I I feel like my experiences are so hard to map on to any kind of generalized identity. Um, You know, for example, you know, look, I I consider myself, I'm a black person, right? Um, But I come from a very particular black experience, which is not unlike the experience of the president of the United States, right? Former president of the United States. I guess all of us forget every once in a while. Hard to forget that happened. Um, but, you know, I have an African mother and a um, and a white father. And I feel like I have a different experience of being a black person as a result of that identity um, than someone who, uh, you know, is from the descendants of, of, of slaves um, or someone who comes from a perhaps further back Caribbean diaspora background. Um, and yet... You know, I'm, I I also was educated in a deeply kind of uh, unpolitically correct way. I went to St. John's College, which is this kind of great book school, um, which is equally popular with like hardcore conservatives who want their kids to like read the great white, you know, men canon and sort of free thinking liberals like my parents. Um, so I have this very kind of like heterodox idea of like what an education is, what underpins identity, um, you know, uh, I don't think that I'm very easily pigeonholed um, in in any of those boxes. So, so I, I I confront this, and I you know you know like like you, I have a staff full of young people who came up in a very different tradition and who feel very fired up about um, the big identity battles. And um, and and I, I I listen and I try to navigate them, but I don't find them mapping onto my life in a personal way, which is which is hard. Yeah, when you were hired, I mean, there was a big conversation about how cool it was that for the first time you had a, a queer black woman re- leading this this big organization. There was these just like amazing pictures of you and out, which like you, I, which you see, I feel like you en- <laughs> turned were- out you enjoyed like being photographed, gore- beautiful and expensive clothes. <laughs> who, who among us wouldn't? But I, I did, but I, yeah, but it also felt like I'd never seen you portrayed that. I mean, I never, you'd never yeah. quite had that happened before. Yeah. And I think like like a lot of journalists of, of our vintage and earlier, um, I think we are not so comfortable with being the story. We're not so comfortable with the facts of our biography being taken as indicative of um, like the direction of our journalism. Um, and, you know, I, I think all of us in the pursuit of a more perfect version of the truth and the story need to reckon with, you know, what we bring to the story. And uh, I think that I'm confronting that in a very real way every day. And, you know, I, I'm extremely 
proud of of who I am, and and it's nice to see it celebrated. But um, you know, if someone were to ask me to sort of list in order, like the you know biography. Um, you know, journalist comes first. That's... Yeah, I was. I always thought when I when I sort of think about your identity, the first thing I think is if I cut you, you would bleed New York Times Inc. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's I think that's right. And I, you know, to me, that's that the the foundational fact of my identity is that I am a journalist. Um, and so, it's it's hard to imagine putting anything else first. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Was it hard to leave the Times? Because I think of you partly because you are sort of like like the most like the purest embodiment of what you just said this kind of unambiguous embrace of the profession of journalism of really probably anybody i know and i always thought you were the perfect new york times person i know they they loved you and you were really on this track to maybe run the place one day who knows but certainly you were you were you were beloved there and and seen as as, as a real star and i just thought you would never leave i i thought i would never leave i mean um you know the New York Times, I think, really is the gold standard of a certain type of journalism. And in some ways, it's the most important type of journalism. You know, this this chronicle of the biggest and most important stories of our time covered with a level of rigor and seriousness that that is is really unparalleled. Um, and I think like a lot of people uh, after the election, I um, well, let me back up a bit. I've always been a sort of curious and restless person. You know, I've always wrestled with ambition. And, um, you know, I think that there was a really clear path for me to do lots of amazing things at the New York Times. But it's also a very big place. And there are lots of other talented people, you know, who who some in line ahead of me, some behind me. And, you know, I, I felt I, like I was ready for something that I wasn't ready for. And I was sort of wrestling with that and making my making my peace with uh, the idea that, that that it was okay if I didn't scratch that itch right in that moment. Um, and then, you know, when I met um, Jared Grust, um, the CEO of, of, of HuffPost, um, it, it was I was I really didn't think that it was going to lead anywhere. I just sort of thought, oh, we're going to have some nice conversations. And I'm always interested in like what's going on in media and who's, you know, who's doing what. And, you know, I'm, like you, I'm sort of obsessed with the future of this intersection of media and technology. And so, you know, as our conversations progressed, I was like, oh, wow, I really like this guy. This guy's brilliant. And he's got really smart ideas. And, you know, this is an interesting opportunity. But, you know, I think the real sort of decision moment for me was election night and just realizing that that there was something happening in the country and in the world that had a very deep relationship to the nature of the current media landscape and that this opportunity that was in front of me could be a place to try and work on that, to try and fix fix what was going wrong and um, – or at least make an attempt. Um, and it suddenly became like a very real and serious thing to me, you know, that, that like, oh, this is an opportunity that I should really consider. Um, not to sound grandiose, but I mean beyond my own personal ambitions, it felt like a kind of – civic opportunity, you know, yeah. that if I didn't do it, then, you know, someone else would. And maybe they do a better job. Maybe they do a worse. But, like, there are worse things to do than to try and take this massive platform with huge reach and make it into something even better. It, it also, it, I mean, you, you've talked about about there's some DNA, there's something about Huffington Post's vibe and approach that has a kind of a root in New York tablets. And you've talked about the Huffington Post being a modern tablet. I'm curious what you think that means. 
Well, you know, I think that to me, the tabloid sensibility in the best sense of the word, and I think people like as tabloids have receded as a, as a kind of force in media, people have started to associate the word tabloid with like the National Enquirer and stuff like that. But to me- And what it really literally means is just that kind of paper that you fold, you fold over. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it happens to be super easy to read on the subway. Um, and to me, the sort of like the, 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 the ados, if you will, of like tabloid is like Daily News in the 1970s, you yeah. know, um, you know, you've got Jimmy Breslin, you covering, you know, um, there's, 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 you know, there's crime, there's a little bit of like TNA, um, you know, on certain pace, pages to, you know, keep the keep the gents interested, but it's a it's it's fundamentally a, a working person's newspaper, you know, it's a news organization that thinks of its mission as to speak directly to. Um, people who are kind of at the kind of the, 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 the people who are sort of the foundation of the American workforce or were at one time. Yeah. And um, but what I loved about the, what I love about this conception of, of the tabloid is that actually everybody read it. Right. I mean, uh, the janitor read it and the CEO read it. Right. They might read it for slightly different reasons. Um, but and, and, ta- you ha- and you had to read it. You had to read it. Right. Because like that's where the conversation was happening. And, you know, I think that great tabloids were always driven by a sense of outrage, a, you know, a sense of righteous indignation about hypocrisy, about corruption, about, you know, the foibles of the super rich, you know, and had this sensibility of, um, you know, like, there are people out there that are trying to screw you and we're going to like expose them for it. And um, and to me, that feels like a great place to be in this particular moment in American journalism and frankly, global journalism. Right. I mean, we've traditionally thought of media on this kind of left right spectrum um, and most media is kind of clustered in the center. And. I think people have traditionally thought of HuffPost as being this kind of liberal progressive voice. And and that's, you know, they, I think there are good reasons for thinking that. I mean, it started after, uh, you know, George W. Bush was reelected and um, it was an answer to the Drudge Report. Um, but to me, the we're living in this very profoundly non-ideological time where um, the real divide is between people who have power and people who either don't have power or feel that they don't have power, right? Um, and the feeling part is really important, right? Because, uh, you know, I, I think everybody's talking about, like, facts and truth and, you know, like, that, that, that you know, we're here to fact check. And, and all of that, I think, is – that's the base material of journalism. You cannot have journalism without facts and truth. But if facts and truth were what actually – you know, sort of moved people's lives and moved their decision making, like the election would have had a different outcome, right? So I think we need to reckon in a very serious way with the emotional content of news and the way that people perceive facts and their perception of their situation. Um, and to me, I think the, the, the tabloid is is like fundamentally a kind of emotional form of journalism and that that kind of emotional valence is what distinguishes it from from the broadsheet. Um, yeah, that, and it, it's probably, in, I mean, that emotional valence is also what what spreads on Facebook, right? What works on this internet. Totally. Yeah. And I think facts and truth are, are, are essential to journalism, but you, you need to reckon with emotion. Um, you have to deal with how people feel. Otherwise, you, you miss the story. There's also always been a kind of cruelty to tabloids. Yeah. 
and, mean, and, and Central Park um, jogger case. Um, you know, there. You know, Jimmy Breslin, of course, accused of racism at various points. You know, so there's the, the kind of sexism to them. Um, so yeah, they're but definitely. Is that not? Isn't that sort of part of letting leading with your gut? With sometimes your worst. I mean, how do you? Do you, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it was when I look at it, what a lot of a lot of the worst on the internet right now. It is it's it's content that people know will spread because it panders to people's instincts. No, I think that's right, and I think that um, for 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 us, what we're trying to do is find the right balance of creating a space for emotion that leads to a sense of empathy and solidarity rather than a sense of division. Um, you know, in my most grandiose moments, I think of HuffPost as a platform that um, that makes solidarity possible, you know, that, that, that really thinking about the emotional content of stories is a way to help people who think or have been manipulated to think that their in- interests are opposed to one another that they actually are aligned in in a fundamental way and they're actually in the same boat. Um, A lot of the stories that we've been doing about the effects of uh, Trump administration policies on on rural people, um, I think, speak directly to this. Um, You know, there's this trope that came out of the Trump campaign but also has been prominent in conservative politics for a long time that, you know, the takers are the people, you know, these, these you know, black and brown people who live in cities who are on welfare and live in public housing. and But the level of dependence on government among uh, rural populations is actually extraordinary. Um, and they suffer even more when that assistance is taken away because they don't have access to the economic dynamism of cities, you know. So if there are ways to tell stories that help people in, in rural areas and people in urban see, you know, their kind of mutual need for care. That to me is is the kind of thing that I want HuffPost to try and do. You said non-ideological, but that sounds like the what Nancy Pelosi said yesterday, more or less. Well, I mean, is that ideological? I mean, ideology to me is fundamentally an elite pursuit, right? I mean, most people are just not all that interested in single payer versus government you know they're they're very interested in you know wait are there going to be death panels or they, but that's all a creation of this like hot house media and politics environment right so i, I don't I, maybe if humanism is an ideology then, then it's ideological but i don't see it as being on the traditional left right spectrum so you don't see so you don't see half post as being left wing i think um I don't even know what being left-wing means anymore. I feel that the left-right spectrum has been so fundamentally scrambled by primarily by the politics around globalization um, that – and you saw it in Brexit. You saw it in the French election. You see it, saw it in our election. It's happening everywhere. Um, and so I just don't know that this left-right way of thinking um, is actually a very useful framework. Um, I, I, I like now to think Now you do of, sound like Arianna Huffington. Yeah. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> I try. Uh, but, you know, if you think of like, you know, if you think about the, the, the horizontal axis as being left to right, I'm much more interested in the uh, the vertical axis, which is, um, you know, haves and have nots. And you made a hire that, that you were going to tell me about on, the, on this, uh, Very on this, excited on this about tabloid. This. Tell me about this. So um, Jim Rich, the editor in chief of The Daily News, um, until uh, you know, late last year, um, is going to be joining as our executive editor, and I could not be more excited. Um, Jim is many different things, but um, he has a great combination of a kind of old school, 
uh, tabloid reporter and editor's sense for what's a great story. But he's also incredibly passionate about social justice. Uh, I think Sean King called him the most woke editor in America, uh, if, if that's a compliment. Is that in his Twitter bio? Uh, it's not in his Sh- Twitter bio. Sean King. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, um, but, you know, I mean, I think he, uh, I think one of, the, one of the things that really impressed me about Jim, aside from him just being like an all-around great guy, is that um, I think he instinctively understood that the Daily News could punch way above its weight in the, in the era of the internet and that um, he could use the megaphone of the tabloid wood um, and their storytelling power to... The, um, the wood being the, the, home, the front page of the tabloid, which uh, used, to be, exactly. used to be cut in a wood block. That's e- what they call it, that. Exactly. Um, and, you know, I think there was a moment when, you know, the daily, you know, there was a time when the Daily News seemed destined to just complete irrelevance um, and had no, you know, really no, no, no purchase. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think he managed to turn it into a real phenomenon. Um, yeah, that front, I mean, now it's just a JPEG, but that front page yeah. really became yeah. a powerful thing. I mean, it had an almost meme-like quality, you know, and, yeah. um, and so, and that shares a real kinship with the HuffPost splash, right? I mean, we've always had a kind of, Slightly backward looking, you know, clever headline driven, slightly shocking or funny image. Um, but that, again, connects back to that emotion idea, you know. So so, so Jim, I think, is someone who really knows how to how to run a, a great journalistic crusade. Um, and I'm excited to, like, get on board and, and run something with him. Yeah. Congratulations on that. Um, yeah. To, to both of you. And thanks for coming in. That's all I got. So great to talk to you, Ben. This show is produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, Meredith Kennedy, and Daryl Levy. And, and one of the really frustrating things about podcasts is you don't get the kind of instant response that you do when you publish a story on the internet and you see immediately you know, who's reading it and why and, 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 and what they're saying about it. So I would be very grateful if, in, uh, if you've made it this far, if you could review this thing on, on iTunes, which is the only feedback I get other than running into people in elevators who want to talk about it. <laughs>